Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you today. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Pastor Scott Luck. I'm one of the pastors here. Go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Psalm 23. And uh, as, you're, as you're doing that, I, um, you know, I really just want, want to encourage you to be here every single Sunday. I want to encourage you to bring your Bible every single Sunday. Uh, because the truth is this, I really have nothing of any value to say to you apart from the Word of God. I really don't. I, I, have nothing, I have nothing to offer of you that's of any lasting consequence. And it's interesting because we're living in a time, we're living in a cultural moment where there are many churches in our community and certainly a lot of churches throughout the nation uh, that do not really teach the Bible. And they may sprinkle some carefully selected Bible verses in and they, they may quote Jesus every now and then. Uh, but by and large, they're, they're really not teaching the Bible and they're avoiding the difficult topics that, that Scripture brings to us, which is kind of interesting. And so this is just the cultural moment that we live in. This is where we find ourselves uh, as, as a country. And so uh, I'll get feedback from people that visit our church or they're watching online and, and people will say something along the lines like this. I'll say, man, you guys are really into Scripture. Uh, you know, and it kind of comes across like, you know, they don't mean it, but it's kind of like we're the, we're the odd man out or something, you know. And, and, uh, and I just want to ask, can you really have a church and not preach and teach the Bible? Can you really do that? Or is that just a club or a gathering? I'm not sure what that is, uh, but it's, it's, it's not the church. And so, and so if I'm preaching and teaching to you that is not the word of God, um, that's just... There's just nothing there, just no value there. And, uh, and so I could stand up every single Sunday and I could give you three points in a poem. You know, I could give you pop psychology. I could give you chicken noodle soup for the soul. Uh, I mean, I could quote some lyrics from a Carrie Underwood song, you know, and it, you know, it, might be, it might be good. But here's what I know. When a church abandons and vacates the authority of the word of God, something always fills that vacuum, church. Something always does. And it could be politics, it could be social justice, it could be popular morality, it could be pop psychology, but in the end, it's really nothing of any value. It's really man-centeredness, and uh, instead of really centering ourselves on the Word of God. And so uh, every single Sunday, we, we stand for the reading of the Word of God, and we do that because we are recognizing the authority that God's word has over our lives. And what we're doing is we're seeking to place ourselves under that authority. Does that make sense? So that's, that's why uh, we do that. And so, and so I think, you know, when you turn on the news or you, you know, you're, you're reading through the headlines on web pages or whatever, I think our nation needs more of God's word, not less. I, I think it needs more of Jesus, not less. And so, and so what we see is the word of God is what nourishes our souls. That's what feeds us. It's the word of God that transforms us, that gives us light and life and joy and eternal life. That's what the word of God brings. I have none of that, church. And so, so really, all we're trying to do is just lay out to you what God has already said, what he has already revealed, and it is really good. Now, this doesn't mean we're a perfect church because we're not. We got our problems like, like uh, everyone else does. But what it does mean is we are pursuing more and more to place ourselves under the glory 
and the grace and the authority of God. We need it more than ever. And you know what? Here's the thing, church. Long after I'm gone, long after they've thrown the last shovel of dirt on top of my grave, the la- you know, long after that, there's one thing that's going to still be standing. You know what it is? It's the word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. And I want to build my life on something that lasts forever. That's, that's what I want my life to stand for. So that was all free today. How about that? Uh, anyway, so why don't we stand together out of reverence for the word of God as we read Psalm 23. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we are in week seven of a series that we've been, we've been calling uh, Living in the Overflow. And we're really just talking about living in the overflow of God's, God's goodness every day. And this morning, I really want us to focus on verse five of Psalm 23, uh, where David says this. He says, you prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. And so what he's talking about here, what he's really trying to explain to us is the goodness of God. He's just simply trying to explain something that can be difficult to explain, because you're explaining something that's eternal, uh, something that is divine, and so he's just trying to find some metaphors that he can use that we can grab onto to try to understand what he's talking about in, uh, you know, in, in the goodness of God. And so now verse 5 in particular is something that I think we struggle as Christians in the West. Uh, we kind of struggle with this one because we, we don't understand the significance of the table. We don't understand really the, the anointing with oil and then uh, the cup overflowing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that today. I want to talk to us about how that really illustrates the goodness of God uh, in our lives. And so when you think about this, and this has kind of been the bottom line of, of this series that we've been doing, uh, if the enemy can, can get you and I to question God's goodness, to doubt God's goodness, uh, he can do anything he wants to do with us at that point. And so I don't know if you've noticed in your relationship with God how much time and energy the enemy spends on whispering to you lies about the goodness of God, that you can't trust the goodness of God, you can't trust God, He'll, he's not faithful, he's not going to come through for you, uh, he's just trying to make you miserable. He feeds us those kinds of lies continually because, he, because the enemy wants us to doubt and question God's goodness. And so you look through scripture and you find that the very first sin that was ever committed was along those very same lines of questioning God's goodness. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. God tells them you can eat of all the trees in the garden except this, this one tree. That one tree's off limits. And so the serpent comes into the garden and uh, tempts Adam and Eve by saying, you know, God's really holding out on you. Uh, that tree that he's forbidden you to eat of, 
there's something really good there he doesn't want you to have. He's holding back, and you really can't trust him. And so he just knows that if you eat of that tree, then you'll become like him. And uh, he doesn't want that for you. And so you need to take matters in your own hands. You need to go after uh, it yourself. And so that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They ate of the tree, and then, and then um, re that resulted in sin and death entering into the world. And here's the thing, church. Ever since that day, we've been doubting the goodness of God. Our default mode as human beings is to be very skeptical and very cynical of the goodness of God. We're much quicker to believe in our own goodness than we are the goodness of God, even though every sunrise, every bird chirp, every, every breath of oxygen we breathe communicates the goodness of God to us. It's interesting, you know, a lot of theologians uh, like to kind of ask the question, what's the core sin? What's the sin that's underneath all sins? And, uh, and so a lot of theologians will say pride. They'll say that this whole issue of uh, in, our, in our human nature of wanting to be God, wanting to be first is kind of the core sin. And, and I, I, really, I really disagree. Uh, not that I'm anybody significant, but I think the core sin is unbelief. I think the core sin is just choosing not to believe in the goodness of God. And I think that opens up a chain reaction, a downward spiral, if you will, that leads us farther and farther away from God. And so the whole premise of this series is the more you and I understand the goodness of God, the more you and I trust in the goodness of God, the more you and I walk in the goodness of God, the more we will love him and obey him and uh, the more freedom and joy that we have in our lives. So, so David says this. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. What does he mean by that? What is he talking about there? Well, I want to give you, I just want to give you briefly today just three insights into God's goodness from verse 5. I want, to, I want to show first and foremost God's goodness revealed. God's goodness revealed. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to help us understand and see the goodness of God, that we would understand it. And then secondly, he talks about that, that God uh, prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. And what he's talking about is how we all have enemies that try to conceal God's goodness from us. And I'll talk about those enemies and how God's goodness is concealed. And then lastly, I wanna talk just about how we can realize God's goodness in our lives and then just walk in it in a very, in very practical way. So, so let's look at the first one, God's goodness revealed. Look at, look at what he says in verse five. You prepare a table before me uh, in the presence of my enemies, my you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Now, I want you to notice that there's a shift in the psalm at this point. So now we're no longer in the pasture with the shepherd. So we've, we've, we've kind of left the pasture and now we're at the dinner table. So there's been a real shift there. So we're not talking about sheep anymore. We're really talking about a raucous party. We're talking about a feast. And uh, I want you to know that that word table, because he says, you prepare a table uh, before me, that word table literally means feast or banquet. So he's, what David is trying to communicate to us is that God is so good, he prepares a banquet for us. Now, what kind of banquet is this? Well, let's just go through it word by word and, and uh, see if we can just carve it out of here. Notice what he says, you, you prepare a table before me, you. So what he's talking about here is that God is the host of the banquet. God is the one who puts the banquet on. 
It was his idea. God is throwing a feast. He's throwing a party. Can you imagine getting an invitation in the mail from God inviting you to a banquet, to a, to a party? And then, and then Jesus writes in the corner with his handwriting, and you're on the A-list. You're on the inside. You would be elated. You would probably take a shower, get a haircut, get something new on, and, and couldn't sleep for days until that, until that party. That's exactly what he's talking about. And then he says this, you prepare a table. Now, I want you to notice that um, this, is not, this is not a banquet or a feast that's just hurriedly thrown together. That's not what he's talking about. This is not something off the cuff. This is not a hot pocket on a paper plate. That's not what this is. This is not Chick-fil-A on a folding table. Uh, what this is is a king's table. So God is preparing a banquet. This is a king's table. You know what a king's table is? It's one of those long tables that seats... I don't know, 500 to 1,000 people, maybe, maybe more. Um, you've, you've, you've seen different pictures of it. Uh, maybe not 500 or 1,000, but 50 to 100. Uh, that would be the mother of all tables there. Um, but that's the king's table. I think that's the imagery David is talking about. David knows about a king's table. He sits at a king's table every single day. And what he's talking about is that God prepares a table, a king's table, uh, for for you, it's, it's a sacred, it's, it's special, uh, it's well-planned, and it's laid out. Then he says this, you prepare a table before me, before me. Guess what? The table, the feast, is in honor of you. You're invited. You're the guest of honor. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is inviting you to banquet with him. And he's not in, you know, it, it's not about anybody else. This is just about you. Because this is how much the King of Kings and Lord of Lords loves you. This is how much he cares about you. Because he just wants to banquet with you. He's just communicating to us how special we are. He says this, you prepare a table before me. So, in, in, and then he says this, in the presence. So, so really what he's talking about is this is not a private gathering. This is public. This is for all the world to see. This is on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, the whole world. It's, it's God honoring you and blessing you in front of everybody else. That's what this is. It's a banquet. And, and so it's, it's public. It's not a secret event. And now, notice what he says here. He goes on to say, I'm going to skip over enemies because we'll come right back to that. But he says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, this is where in the West, we don't, we don't, this metaphor really starts to break down for us because we don't really understand this. So in the Middle East, in Jesus' day, when you were having someone over to your home, you would set out a cruise of perfumed oil by the front door. And so when your guest of honor arrived, you would greet them and kiss them on each cheek, and then you would, you would put some some of that ointment, some of that oil on your hands, and you would, you would anoint their face and you would anoint their hair. And so this was just a part of receiving someone who is dearly loved, someone who is dearly treasured. And what you're doing is you're refreshing them, you're perfuming them, you're, you're renewing them as they walk into your home. And, and so they smell this perfumed ointment, this perfumed oil, all throughout their time with you uh, in your home. And it was, 
it's a, just a, a way, a cultural way to communicate love and respect. Now, they do this in Hawaii. So if you go to Hawaii, you have dinner at someone's home, you walk in their front door, they're going to put a lay of flowers around your neck. And what that does is it renews you and refreshes you with the, you know, with the, the nice smell of the flowers. This is really no different than what you see in the Gospel of Luke when Mary uh, anoints Jesus head and feet when she walks into when he walks into the home and so you remember that story the disciples started pushing back because she was very extravagant with the expensive perfumed oil so they push back and kind of criticize and judge her and Jesus says to Simon he says Simon you didn't do that to me when I walked in in other words you didn't show that respect to me you didn't honor me in that way and basically what he said is what what she has done is a very very beautiful thing. And so that's what Dave is communicating here is that, that what God does is not only throw a banquet for us, but he refreshes and renews us. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then he says this. He says, my cup overflows. Now this is another one that kind of breaks down for us a little bit. Because in, in the Middle Eastern day, when you were, when you were on a journey, um, you could knock you could stop at anybody's home, knock on the door, and ask for something to eat. And, and that person was required to give you something to eat. It was just cultural. It was the cultural norm. It was custom for them to do that. So they would invite you into their home. And uh, even though you're unannounced and unplanned for and all of that. And so, and so you would feed them. And um, if, you're, if you're not really liking the person that's eating in your home, you get towards the end of the meal and their cup is empty. So what you would do is you would fill their cup. If you're not really connecting with them, you don't really like them, you know, whatever, you would only fill their cup halfway. And that was a nonverbal sign that basically says, you need to finish up and hit the road, Jack. That's what, that what needs to happen here. And, and, so, and so, but if you were really connecting with the person and you really kind of just hit it off and you guys are fellowshipping and talking and becoming really good friends, you would take that cup and in front of them fill it to overflowing. And then that was a nonverbal sign that says, please stay. You are welcome. You are a friend. And that is exactly what David is communicating here. You not only anoint my head with oil, but you fill my cup to overflowing. You give and you invite me to even stay and to fellowship. That is, that is amazing. So, so here's what David's trying to say. God prepares a feast for us, and this feast satisfies us. God anoints our head with oil, and this oil refreshes and renews us. And God fills our cup to overflowing. He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he invites us to hang out and stay. It's pretty amazing. Now, let's go back to that one, one word that we need to deal with here. He says this, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now that's, that's, that's kind of odd as well. When you kind of think about it, we, you know, you, you would expect him to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my friends, because I want my friends here too. But what, what, what David recalls for us is that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. What is he talking about? This is a very special banquet. It's a banquet prepared on a battlefield. 
It's a banquet on display in front of all those who oppose you, attack you, criticize you, who are working against you. In other words, your enemies. And so the king basically says that this banquet is for you not only when times are great, but when you are under attack, when you are worn out, when you are broken. And so, and so David's reminding us that God honors us and blesses us and pours his love into our life for all the world to see, for all the world to see, so that, so that the world would see, see his glory. Now, when you think about your enemy, the one thing that we all have in common is we have, we have three of the same enemies, okay? And so, and so I think what David wants us to see is that all of us are fighting the same enemies. And those enemies, they work towards the same goal. Those enemies work towards the goal of concealing God's goodness from us. They don't want us, these enemies don't want us to see God's goodness. Because if we see it, we're going to trust God and we're going to walk in that goodness and we're going to experience freedom and joy. And these enemies hate us so much, they don't want that for us. So they work overtime, not to reveal God's goodness, but to conceal it. So let's look at God's goodness concealed. What are those three enemies? Number one, the world around me. When you think about the fact that you have an enemy, the world around you is first and foremost your enemy. Now what's, when I say the world, it's kind of a generic term. What does that really mean? The world is really all the people that are living in rebellion against God that we're around just about every single day. They're the people that are in rebellion against God, that they have, they have morals and values and, and uh, you know, just beliefs that contradict God's commandments and God's word. And so the world is really in opposition to God. The world is in war, at war with God because the world chooses to worship itself and not God. Now, the interesting thing about this enemy of the world is it really is seeking to put pressure on us not to follow Jesus, not to obey him, but to turn away from him. And the message of the world to us is all the same. It's, it comes to us in so many different ways. And really, this message from the world is a pernicious lie. And the pernicious lie is this, you don't need God. You don't need God. You can secure what, what will make you happy and satisfied through your own goodness, through your own giftedness, through your own capacities. You don't need God. And that is the message that we fall for all the time, that we can, we can have life apart from God. And we just get pounded from, from the world with that message over and over and over again. Let me show you how John describes the world. This is from 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now I want you to notice a couple of things about that verse. You can sell out for the desires of the world. You can live for the desires of the world. You can do that. 
You can give yourself up. The problem with that is those desires will not last. There's going to be a point when they will cease. But what John is reminding us of is the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so, and so you really have a choice. You'll either love the world or you'll love the Father, but you can't love both. And the truth about it is, church, I think there are, there's some of us here today that are really trying to do that. We're really trying to walk that fence. We're trying to, we've got one foot with the world and we've got one foot with God and we're not happy at a bar and we're not happy at a prayer meeting. We're just miserable because we're not really all in either way. And so, and so there's, there, there, comes to, there has to be a point when you've got to make a decision and say, I'm going all in for God and I'm leaving the world. Some of you have got to make that decision. And so that's our enemy. The world is our enemy. But then there's a second enemy, and that is this, Satan against me. Satan against me. Now, the Bible says, when you think about this, the Bible says that you have a real enemy. You have a real enemy, and his name is Satan. And uh, I'll, I'll just try to boil it down as simply as I can by just saying this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. He really does. The Bible says that, that the enemy lies to you. He wants to defeat you and he wants to destroy you. He would kill us if God would let him. So God is always restraining him. And so the only reason why Satan hates us the only reason why Satan hates you is because God loves you. And, and, and the reality is, is that he has set himself up against hurting us because he thinks in the end that will hurt God because we are so treasured and loved by God. So just think of it this way. If you wanted to get at me, if you wanted to hurt me, what would you do? You just go after my kids, right? You go after my wife. You know, it's not about me. You want to hurt me, you go after them. And that's exactly what he does. And he causes us to question the goodness of God. He doesn't want us to dwell on, to meditate on, to think about God's goodness in our life. And so he tries to deceive us into thinking God can't be trusted. You, you know, there's a catch, you know, all of that stuff. And so that we might not have faith in God. So there you go. There's two enemies, the world, Satan, and then last, my sinful nature inside of me. My sinful nature inside of me. Now, I don't know if you realize all the things that God did when he saved you, that moment of salvation for you and for me, God did so many things. I mean, you, they, you could write volumes about what God has done. I mean, like he forgave you, he justified you, uh, he sanctified you, he transferred you from darkness to light, uh, he regenerated you, he, you became born again, right? He did, he did all of these things, but there's one thing God didn't do at salvation. You know what that is? When we became Christians, that moment of salvation, he didn't take sin out of our lives. And what that means is, is we still have to battle sin every single day. I have to battle it, you have to battle it because it's inside of us. Now, the day we die, it will be, you know, we will be completed and that sin nature will be removed from us. But until then, what God wants us to learn is how to rely on God to defeat the world and Satan and the flesh within us. 
And sometimes, church, it's a struggle. And you know that it's a struggle. And I know that it's a struggle. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 knows that it's a struggle because he even says, you know, I do the things that I don't want to do. I do all these things that I know are wrong and I don't want to do them, but I end up doing them anyway. And then I don't do the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. Is there anybody who can save me from this? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who can save us. And so we have an enemy, and the enemy is us, right? Like our sinful nature inside of us. So, so that's, those are the things that are working against us every single day so that we'll not see, not recognize, and not trust in the goodness of God. Now, what about God's goodness realized in our life? God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. How do I, how do I banquet at this feast, right? How do I get my head anointed with oil? How do I have a cup that's overflowing? Well, let me, let me, talk, about, let me talk about three practical ways here that uh, the prepared table really points to uh, God's goodness because it, the prepared table really does symbolize these three things. Let me give them to you. Here's the first and foremost. When you think about this prepared table, it really symbolizes the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. The fullness we have in Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. Jesus Christ satisfies your deepest longings. He satisfies your deepest hunger. He really does. And that's, that's why David uses this whole metaphor of, of a meal. Because when you think about it, when you've had a really good meal and you stand up from the table, how do you feel? Like you've just eaten at Bonefish, right? Or Stone Creek or Mrs. Curl, if that's your speed. You know what I mean? Like, and you get up. How do you get up after a really good meal? You feel satisfied and full, don't you? That's what, what he's saying is, God is who satisfies me. God is who satisfies us. Really, the Bible is a continual feast of God's goodness from Genesis to Revelation. Did you know that? Like, it's, it's all about eating. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, you know, you read through the Old Testament and you notice, have you noticed all the feasts in the Old Testament? I think there's seven of them. So you have the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost. And you're reading through the, some of the descriptions of these and you're almost ready to fall asleep. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? You get kind of bored. And, and then as Americans in, in a postmodern society, we're like, I just don't understand this. It has no relevance to my life. Church, it has every relevance to your life. You know why? Because what it tells us is this. God loves to party. That's what it's saying. Because they're having feasts all throughout the year. It's like, come on. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the goodness of God, are they not? And so you read about it and read about it and read about it and read about it and you're just struggling to find the relevance to your life. And so, and so we think oftentimes God is some kind of cosmic killjoy that wants to just take away all joy and pleasure. No, he is the God of all joy and pleasure and he wants us to celebrate his goodness and love. And that's why there's so many feasts. Even in the New Testament, what do you see Jesus doing? He takes a few loaves and some fish and he multiplies it enough to feed 10 to 15,000 people. And what's the point of that? 
it, what the point of that is, is in our inadequacy, where we don't measure up, God fills the void. God satisfies. God comes through. He always does. We don't have what we think we have. We're always short. We're always coming short. That's what the few loaves and fish really remind us of. That we don't have, we're not adequate in and of ourselves. Only God is able. And then you get to the end of the book of Revelation. Do you realize what happens at the end of time? The biggest party you've ever seen, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine how big that king's table is going to be? And all his sons and daughters will be there. And that's how we're going to consummate the end of time and the beginning of all of eternity where sin, death, and disease are done away with once and for all. And God will be making all things new. It's just pretty amazing. It'll be the ultimate display of the celebration of the goodness of God because you and I will be looking back over our lives and we will be telling stories not of our goodness, not of our faithfulness, but his. And I mean joy will reign supreme in that day. Now there was one feast that Jesus instituted right in the middle of the storyline of scripture. Do you remember what feast that was? Yeah, you can say it, the Lord's Supper, right? Um, the Lord's Supper really resembled the Passover feast, uh, but there was one big difference. In the Lord's Supper, they would, not, they would not sacrifice a lamb. See, the Passover really reminds us that we're saved by the blood of the lamb, but Jesus would, Jesus would institute the Lord's Supper by basically saying, he's going to be the lamb. He's going to offer himself up. We're going to find life through his death. And so it's a feast. The Lord's Supper is. We're going to celebrate it in just a few minutes. It's a feast of his goodness and grace and mercy to us as sinners. And so Jesus' death and resurrection really is, is God's way of saying that there was a chasm that existed between us and God. Because what we did is we doubted the goodness of God. We rejected the goodness of God. We walked away from the goodness of God. And we said to ourselves, I can secure it by myself. I don't need God. And that is the essence of sin. But what God did is gave up what was most precious to him to pay the penalty that incurred from our rejection of him. And so, really, the Lord's Supper reminds us, Jesus' death on the cross reminds us that God really wants fellowship with you. He, he wants closeness with you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want the world and the flesh and the devil to separate us from him. He, he wants a relationship with him. You see, a banquet in Scripture always represents fellowship. And just just imagine this, the most amazing thing in all of Scripture is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords wants a relationship with you and me. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. You know, when you're building a friendship with someone you want to build it, what do you, what do, you do? You say, hey, come on over for dinner. Come eat. Let's hang out. That's all Jesus is saying through David. You prepare a table before me. You prepare a banquet for me. The problem is, is we're, we're too quick to believe the lies that this world will satisfy us, that this world will give us life. 
And we, we think if we can just pursue more pleasure, more power, more prestige, more possessions, whatever it is, it's different but the same for all of us, then we'll be satisfied. And we believe it over and over and over again. I remember uh, when I was a kid growing up, I loved watching Coyote and Roadrunner. You guys remember that cartoon? Now, I just dated myself. Half the room doesn't know what I'm talking about at this point, which is really scary. But uh, So there was a cartoon with this coyote, and uh, his name was Wiley Coyote, and he would chase the Roadrunner. He wanted to eat the Roadrunner. And uh, if you remember the storyline, it's the same thing, same plot line every single time. And so he tried everything to catch the Roadrunner. Uh, he would strap on these rocket-propelled roller skates. He would shoot himself out of a cannon. He would put himself on a giant slingshot, all in pursuit of the elusive roadrunner. And what was the storyline? He never caught him. Chasing it, chasing it, chasing it, chasing it, and he never catches him. And uh, I really think that's the human storyline, that no matter how hard we try to find satisfaction in the world, it's just not there. It's just not there. And so it's closeness with God. It's it's a relationship with God. It's intimacy with God. It's knowing that the God of the universe is with me and in me and for me. That's what brings joy. That's what brings life. And so that's the fullness. You experience the fullness of that relationship. That's what I think the table really symbolizes for us. Now, how do you, how do you experience this on any, on any given day? I, I think... I think the way we experience it is really through the word of God. I think that's the primary way that we experience God's fullness and fellowship because, because what we see in the word of God is the revelation of who God is. It is, it, is, it is the revealing of his love and character in his ways to us. So as we dive into the word of God, we begin to see who he is. And, and, and the interesting thing about the Word of God is it's living and active. So it's like this book is alive. And so as we, as we dive into it, God meets us here because it's God-breathed. And so we experience the revelation of God's goodness. You need to be in the revelation of God's goodness every single day of your life. Not because you're going to earn points with God, but so that you can be reminded of the goodness of God, so that you can have your eyes open to the goodness of God. That's what the Word of God does for us. You need, you need to feed on it every single day. The Word of God is our meat, it's our milk, it's our bread, it is our sweet dessert. That's what it is. So if you want the fullness, go for it with the Word of God. But then there's another symbol of this prepared table, and that is the freshness that we have in Christ. So David says, you, you anoint my head with oil. Now, what's interesting in the Bible is oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Throughout Scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit renews us the Holy Spirit refreshes us as believers. He, uh, he strengthens us. He revives our soul when we're worn out, when we're beat up, when we're exhausted, when we're tired, all of that. He renews us. And I think a lot of Christians experience a drifting away from closeness with God, because I've experienced it myself. And what happens is we're not walking really in the power of the Holy Spirit anymore. We're really walking in our own strength. 
And so what happens is we get exhausted, we get tired, we get defeated, we get entrapped into sin, and we lose our joy and our strength. So what's the remedy of that? We need a refilling of the Spirit, don't we? We need a renewal in the Spirit. Now why? Because we leak. <laughs> we leak. And so you see this in Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says, Don't get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is making a comparison between being intoxicated with wine and then the filling of the Spirit. And what he's, what he's really saying here is this, I want you to be intoxicated with the Spirit of God. I want you to be filled and refilled and filled again with the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, let's, let's talk about this just for a minute. We, we all know what alcohol does to a person. And al al alcohol is a depressant, uh, but it doesn't make you depressed. What it does is it really... Uh, depresses a part of our brain function. It just kind of shuts down a part of our brain function. And so, and so you become really, really happy, typically, uh, when you are intoxicated because you're not thinking clearly. And so, and so what it does is it kind of shuts down a part of our brain so that we're not aware of our pain, our stresses, our struggles, and our problems. And so we become, we become happier, intoxicated, with wine because we're not seeing things clearly. And so reality is hidden from us because a part of our brain is shut down because of the alcohol. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit is not a depressant. The Holy Spirit gives you intelligence. The Holy Spirit enlivens you and opens your eyes so that you see the goodness of God. You become more aware of his power, more aware of his presence, the more aware of his love for you and the truth of who he is in your life. That's what the Spirit of God does. And we need to be renewed and refreshed in the Holy Spirit every single day so that we can walk and keep in step with the Spirit every day. Now, how do you, how do, you do this? How, do you, how are you filled with the Spirit of God? How do you how do you do that, Scott? It's really simple. You just ask. You just ask. Church, I, I get up every morning. I'm on my knees. Heavenly Father, fill me again with your Holy Spirit. You know what I know about me? I leak. And so I come to God. I get on my knees and I recommit and I rededicate myself and I say, God, I don't want to do or say or think anything that would hurt you or hurt someone else. God, would you empower me to that end? Would you renew me in the power of your Holy Spirit? Because I want the fruits of the Spirit to flow out of me. I think that's the freshness that David is alluding to through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, I think the prepared table really symbolizes the freeness, the freeness that we have in Christ. He says this, he says, my cup overflows. And so it's just a reminder that you can't outgive God. That God takes our cup and he just pours so much into it. And it's just overflowing. It's just overflowing with joy, with blessing, with peace, with love. And God just gives. He's a giver. And uh, he wants to pour blessing into our lives. So, so that's, the, 
that's the table. That's the prepared table. And uh, God satisfies, God refreshes, and God's blessings overflow in our lives. And if you're still maybe just a little bit like, I'm not quite sure, not quite sure, Scott, that God is that good, don't look to the table. Just look to the cross. Because what Jesus did is he gave his life on the cross for you to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt his love for you and for me. And so I just, today, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure where you are. Maybe, maybe you've got one foot in the world and one foot with God. Maybe, maybe you're worn out. You're exhausted. You've been living the Christian life in your own strength. Maybe you've been questioning the goodness of God. I just want to call you to give yourselves afresh and anew to him today. I want to call you today to ask God to refill you with his spirit, to renew you, to strengthen you, and to open your eyes to the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the feast that you have prepared for us. Fellowship with you. That we, that we are invited to taste and see that you are good. And so God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be working in our midst today to renew us, to strengthen us, to freshen us again in your power. And I just want to give you a moment, a few moments of just a silence where you can respond to God speaking to you through his word. And if you need to confess that you've, you're just not, you're just apathetic, just going through the motions. If you need to just admit that you're just running on fumes right now. You're, you've been living in your own strength. Then just call out to God. Just tell him where you're at. Confess and admit. And then commit yourself to him. You can do that by saying, God, I, I don't want to do or say or think anything that would hurt you or hurt anybody else. Help me to do that. Go ahead and pray that right now, just silently to yourself. Ask him to open your eyes to the goodness of God this week in your life. Ask him to help you to see it. Thank him in advance for what he's going to do. And if you just want to be filled again with the Spirit, I... I want to just give you an invitation to take your hands and just lift them in front of you with your palms up and ask him to refill you. When your hands just 
extended with palms up. You're just saying, God, I'm receptive. I'll receive the power that comes from you. And I receive it by faith. I receive your Holy Spirit. I receive the fruits of the Spirit. I receive the joy, the freedom. And so, Lord, every person here, God, that's praying for that renewing, I just ask that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would remind them that the filling of the Spirit is not a feeling. It's just truth. It's just faith. And so, God, I pray that you would empower us to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit and renew us in the goodness of God. And so we thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen and amen.